Today's scripture reading is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the words of the apostles, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Grant it to your servant to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and move in power through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Amen. Uh, last week we began our study of Acts by asking to what extent we should copy what we see of the church in the book of Acts. And I argued that while we have to be careful about uncritically adopting all of the specifics that we read about in Acts, there is one thing that we can be absolutely certain that the author of Acts intends us to understand. The big picture the main message of the book of Acts is that nothing will stop the spread of the word of God in the world. Nothing can overcome the expansion of the gospel in the power of the Spirit. This spread of the word of God and addition of new believers to the community of faith, this is the normal condition of the church. And consequently, where people are not coming to faith in Jesus, and the church is not growing, something is wrong. Well, 
this week I want us to uh, look at those first verses of Acts and to explore some of the introductory questions about this extraordinary book that are prompted by those verses. Let me read again the first couple of verses. Many have undertaken to draw up an account. Oh, sorry, I'm reading the wrong book of the Bible. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. I don't know about you, but uh, the moment that I read those first couple of verses, the questions start coming thick and fast. In my former book, Theophilus, who is the mind? Who is the author of Acts? What former book is he talking about? And what's the relationship between this book and that book? Who is this Theophilus? Why does the author mention this first book that he wrote to him? And why is the author of Acts writing to Theophilus? In what circumstances? When? And then, of course, there's this strange phrase, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. What is that about? Ancient books were normally titled after their opening lines. Those lines tell us what the book is going to be about. So Mark's Gospel begins the good news of or about Jesus Christ. And the Revelation begins the revelation of Jesus Christ. That tells you what the book is going to be about. What do the introductory sentences of Acts tell us this book is going to be about? Of course, the first thing that we read when we open the Bible to the book of Acts is this title, The Acts of the Apostles. If you read the book, The Acts of the Apostles might strike you as a rather odd title. Apart from that list of the apostles given here in the first chapter uh, that Susan read for us, only three of the twelve apostles are mentioned by name in the whole of the rest of the book. John in chapters 3 and 4, his brother James, who's only mentioned when we are notified about his death, and Peter, who disappears halfway through the book. Meanwhile, we're told about all sorts of other characters. So the Acts of the Apostles doesn't seem like a very accurate title. As a result, there's been plenty of other alternative suggestions made. The Acts of the Early Church, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, for example. And certainly there's a lot to be said for the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The first words of Jesus recorded in Acts include him telling the disciples, in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he promises them that they'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That promise is inaugurated at Pentecost, and from there on the Holy Spirit directs this ever-expanding mission of the believers. In Acts chapter 8, it's the Holy Spirit who instructs Philip to go uh, to the desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza, where he leads the first African to faith in Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, 
it's the Holy Spirit who speaks to Peter, leading him again in due course to welcome Gentiles into the previously exclusively Jewish church. The Spirit said to him, Simon, there are men looking for you. Get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. It's the Holy Spirit who orchestrates the, the racial crisis that is such a significant turning point for the followers of Jesus. In Acts chapter 13, it's the Holy Spirit who says to the church in Antioch, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them, inaugurating that first great missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 16, it's the same Holy Spirit who prevents Paul and Silas and Timothy from preaching the gospel in Bithynia as they'd intended, so that instead they take the good news into Europe for the first time. All over the book of Acts, we see the hand of the Holy Spirit guiding and instructing and directing the church. In fact, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 40 times in the first 13 chapters of Acts. So perhaps there is a strong case for renaming this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But the name of Jesus is also mentioned 40 times in those first 13 chapters of Acts. And many people have suggested that the best title instead would be the Acts of Jesus. And the reason for this, of course, is that strange phrase in the first verse, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. If the former book by the author of Acts concerned all that Jesus began to do and teach, then obviously the clear implication is that this book concerns all that Jesus continues to do and to teach. Our own uh, friend Daryl Johnson, I mentioned Bruce last week, so it was Daryl's turn this week. He says the star actor in the book of Acts is the risen Jesus, not the apostles. Acts is about Jesus continuing his ministry through his church, empowered by his spirit. In fact, Acts uses the phrase as the Holy Spirit in the believer and Christ in the believer entirely interchangeably. Because the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. The most Holy Spirit moment in Acts, if you can use that term, is surely the moment in which the Spirit comes upon the disciples at Pentecost. Peter describes that event in this way, in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. Even Pentecost is an act of Jesus. And Peter says, Jesus pours forth what people are seeing, the Holy Spirit. John Stott says, Jesus' ministry on earth exercised personally and publicly was followed by his ministry from heaven, exercised through his Holy Spirit by his apostles. So Darrell proposes that perhaps we should call this book The Acts of the Risen Jesus Through His Spirit 
in and through the apostles. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it does at least catch what is really going on here in the book of Acts. But there is a reason that we might want to retain the traditional title, the Acts of the Apostles. That title is probably not original. The first record of the book being called the Acts of the Apostles is around AD 180, more than a century after it was written. So why did that name stick? Well, first of all, I think we need to realize that the apostles envisaged by the title is a wider group than just the 12 mentioned in Acts chapter 1. The first era of the church described in the book of Acts is known as the apostolic age. Just as leaders in the next uh, two or three centuries would become known as the church fathers, so significant figures from the apostolic era would be considered apostles, even if they were not strictly members of that group of 12 apostles originally appointed by Jesus. That was pretty significant when it came to determining what books were actually going to be included in the New Testament. To be authoritative, to be scripture, books had to have apostolic origins. The Gospels of Matthew and John were written by two of the 12 apostles. The Gospel of Mark, even though it was written by Mark, was understood to be based on the eyewitness accounts of the Apostle Peter. Many of the letters in the New Testament were written by Paul. Even though he's not one of the twelve, he was understood to be one who had apostolic authority. So all of the books that became the New Testament have these kinds of apostolic origins. And the New Testament is made up of four kinds of books, Gospels, Acts, letters, we usually call them epistles, and the book of Revelation. And all four kinds have apostolic origins. The Gospels are the apostolic accounts of the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Revelation is the apostolic account of Jesus' self-revelation, a vision given to the Apostle John. The epistles are the messages, the words of the apostles. Now, do you see where I'm going? If the letters in the New Testament are the words of the Apostles, then Acts, in contrast, is the record of the deeds of the Apostles. Hence, the Acts of the Apostles. Now, there are, of course, 32 speeches in Acts. Not all reported speech, but actual speeches. That makes up about a quarter of the whole book. So there are a lot of words of the apostles in Acts as well. But where the letters are the records of the words of the apostles, Acts is the only New Testament account of their deeds. So you can see that when the New Testament was coming together, the Acts of the apostles, in contrast to the words of the apostles, really was a good way to understand the significance of this book, particularly in relation to the rest of the New Testament. So perhaps the Acts of the Apostles is not such a bad name for the book after all, since it does remind us of the tremendous importance of this book to our understanding of the birth of Christianity. And it proves to us that those apostles were not just writers, not just speakers, they were doers as well. Well, 
That's enough about the title. Who wrote this? Well, over this, there's not much controversy. All of the ancient sources are in agreement that the author of the book of Acts was Luke. That means that the former book that he refers to in verse 1 is the Gospel of Luke. What do we know about Luke? There are a few mentions of him elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, we hear about him as a faithful companion of Paul, um, mentioned by Paul in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 4, for example. He's also described by Paul as his fellow worker in Paul's letter to Philemon. And in Paul's letter to the Colossian church, he says, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas, send greetings. Now, all of these three letters were written from Rome, and that corroborates the evidence of Acts itself, that its author was with Paul during Paul's time of imprisonment in Rome. There's two very interesting passages in Acts, uh, one short and one pretty substantial, where the author stops telling the story from the third-person perspective, as if it's events happening to others, and starts writing in the first person. These passages, we, we call them the we passages, indicate that Luke was traveling with Paul at those times. So, for example, uh, you can see the change from first to uh, from third person to first person, if you look at uh, Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16 from verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea, and so on and so forth. At that point, he's just switched person without telling us that he'd specifically joined the group, but he clearly has joined this traveling uh, group of missionaries. When the missionary team leaves Philippi, the account returns to third person. So it seems that Luke remained in Philippi to continue the work of establishing that very first European church. Then in Acts chapter 20, when Paul passes through Philippi again, some years later, suddenly the account goes back to being first person. As Luke rejoins Paul for his journey to Jerusalem, and then on to Rome. The other thing about Luke you might have noticed in Paul's mention of him in Colossians is the description of him as a doctor. We hear that quite commonly, Luke was the doctor. It's very interesting, but it's also maybe a little bit misleading. You see, these days a doctor is a person of high standing, but not in the ancient world. Luke, being a doctor, most likely means that he was a slave. Luke's good literary Greek, uh, like his reference uh, to him being a doctor, that all suggests that he was well-educated. But often it was slaves with aptitude who were chosen to be educated. 
They would be educated for administrative, or in this case, medical roles in particular. Luke must have been freed, though, of course, since he's able to travel with Paul in the way that he does. The other notable thing about Luke is that he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And that makes him the only Gentile author of the New Testament. In fact, it makes him quite likely to be the only non-Jewish author of the entire Bible. Which seems appropriate when Acts is a description of the expansion of the people of God to incorporate people of all nations. So what about this mention of his former book? The mention in the first verse of Acts of Luke's former book, the Gospel, establishes really a significant relationship between these two books. Uh, the New Testament commentator Richard Longnecker, in his commentary on Acts, says that Luke's first book shows how men and women were confronted by the Gospel in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And Acts shows how men and women continue to be confronted by that same Gospel through the ministry of the church. There are a great many similarities between Luke's two books. Uh, most clearly, I, I think, in the ways that Peter and Paul and others in the book of Acts speak and act in continuity with the words and actions of Jesus. They're continuing his ministry as they act and teach in Christ-like ways. The other obvious thing I think that must strike any reader of these two books is Luke's interest in geography. And the Gospel of Luke is marked by this great turn at the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee as he sets his face towards Jerusalem and the trial and the execution that await him there. And the book of Acts similarly moves inexorably from Jerusalem to Rome. And in Acts, it is Paul who sets his face towards Rome and the trial and a possible execution that awaits him there. Some of the differences between the two books are just as fascinating as the similarities. In particular, the Gospel of Luke is continually referring to the kingdom of God. But if you read the book of Acts, the kingdom's mentioned only sporadically. Why is that? References to the kingdom are replaced in Acts by constant references to the church. Because the church is supposed to be the presence of the kingdom. The churches that are planted in cities around the Mediterranean Sea are outposts of God's kingdom. They are signs pointing to the reign of God. Servants of that kingdom as it breaks into the world around them. And foretastes of what it will be like when everyone acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. The other important thing about Luke's mention of his gospel at the beginning of Acts is that it establishes that the introduction to that gospel is actually the introduction to both of these books. Uh, so I'd encourage you just to read those first verses um, from Luke's, Luke chapter 1, those first four verses, which set that up. These two books are the longest books in the New Testament. So that makes Luke the author of about a third of the entire New Testament. And that, of course, raises the question of when Luke, the doctor, the companion of Paul, when did he have time to write them? And the answer is, of course, that we don't know for sure. 
But if you'll indulge me for a moment in just a little bit of speculation, Luke is fascinated with eyewitness accounts. Uh, he mentions that in his introduction to the gospel, and I think that gives us a clue. As a result of those wee passages, we know when Luke was accompanying Paul. We know where he was for several years around AD 60. So for two years, he was with Paul in Jerusalem. Paul was unable to travel. There, Luke was in the Christian community. That included the remaining apostles, Jesus' mother Mary, Jesus' brothers, and a lot of others who known Jesus personally. Paul was then sent on to Rome, and for two years, again, Luke remained with him, with Paul under house arrest and unable to travel. Doesn't it seem likely that Luke, the, the story collector, the writer, wrote his gospel during that enforced stay in Jerusalem, and its sequel, the book of Acts, during that enforced stay in Rome? It seems very likely to me, but we cannot know for sure. The other thing that's common in both of these books is that both are addressed to this Theophilus. Commentators are pretty divided over whether this is actually a real person or not. The reason being that the name Theophilus could be, but probably isn't a real name. Phyllis is a bit like Philadelphia, it means brotherly love, and Theo, of course, means God. So together it's one who loves God. So maybe it's a code name for someone. Some think that it's possible that Theophilus was a Roman official needed to keep his faith on the down low. You'll find arguments about all of these kinds of things in lots of, the, lots of commentaries. I guess that uh, this unstoppable expansion of Christianity that's depicted in Acts might well be a cause for concern among Roman officials, uh, even if Christians can't be accused of any specific crimes. But the focus um, on Paul in Acts is really presenting him as a, a witness to Jesus. Um, it's this witness to Jesus idea which is so consistent in the book of Acts. So perhaps it's better to regard Theophilus as a, a Roman convert to Christianity who's hearing from Luke about Jesus and about Paul, his witness. Uh, and as he says in the first um, verses of his gospel, being given an ordinary account in order that he might know the certainty of the things that he'd been taught about Jesus and the spread of the good news. Since no one would have written such an extensive account as these two long books just for one person, it, it, it needs to be our assumption, I think borne out by the fact that we still know these books today, that Luke expected Theophilus to make these messages widely known for the instruction and the inspiration of future generations. The Acts of the Apostles is no dry court document to prove Paul's innocence or guilt in a Roman court. It's a record of all that Jesus' first witnesses, empowered and directed by his Spirit, did to spread the good news of the Kingdom of God from Jerusalem right to the heart of the Roman Empire itself. Ajith Fernando says, Jesus' statement of the Great Commission in Acts 1.8 is the key text in this book, highlighting the two main themes of Acts, the Holy Spirit and witness. 
From chapter 1 right up to the end of the book, the great activity that dominates this book is evangelism. Why did Luke, unlike the other gospel writers, why did he add a second volume to his gospel? Because Acts is the proof of the gospel. The proof that the salvation Jesus promised to people in the gospels is true. Jesus really changed lives, many lives, and he really continues to change lives, any lives. His offer of forgiveness and reconciliation with God is for everyone, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And when we read this book 2,000 years later, we're intended to recognize that Jesus is still fulfilling his promise. That when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. See, the point when we look at this book today is not what we are to do, but what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach through the church today. Acts defines for us what it is to be a church. Those through whom he's continuing to bring good news to the world through the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. This is the book about Jesus that we're going to begin reading together over these coming weeks. Will you pray with me as we, as we begin this journey together? Lord, we ask that you would draw us deeply into this book. Draw us deeply into your word. Help us, Lord, to dwell richly in this book in the weeks to come as we study it, pray through it, and read it together. Lord, give us new insight and refresh convictions in us where we've read it before but perhaps have not responded. Lord, we pray that as we read about others filled with the Spirit, we would again be filled with the Holy Spirit. As we read about others being bold witnesses for you, we would be bold witnesses for you. And we would join you in all that you're continuing to do and to teach, Lord Jesus. Amen.